Okay, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So you have your outlines, I assume, and you have a pen or a pencil with which to fill those in. And there's only, what, 71? 71 verses. (laughs) That's all. Only 71 verses. Okay, so the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Chapter 5, Jesus gave 10 proofs that he was, in fact, from God, sent from God, that he was the Messiah, and yet the Jews still refused to believe in him. But it goes into chapter 6, and we start with Jesus feeds the multitudes. Now, this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 14 and also in Mark chapter 6. And Mark, it begins in verse 38. So Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, which means there's probably ten to 15,000 people that get fed from five loaves and two fish. And they collected 12 basketfuls that were left over, and all of those were gathered up. And immediately after this takes place, Jesus sends the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee to travel across the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't mean from north or from south to north, but it's probably from west to east, the way that they're heading, based on the other scriptures that we have here in the other Gospels. And then a great wind arose, and towards the north end of the Sea of Galilee, there are these steep slopes that come down uh, from some elevations. And in the distance, you can see Mount Hermon. And the wind can come down with such force, you can get five and six foot seas out there on this lake. And this lake, I don't think it's as big as uh, Lake Tahoe, if you've seen that. It's smaller than Lake Tahoe. And so the wind can really whip up some waves out there, and as they were on the the Sea of Galilee, they see Jesus coming towards them. And of course, this is the famous story. It's recorded in Matthew where they think they see a ghost. And Peter, uh, once they find out it's Jesus, beckons Jesus. Well, hey, if you're really Jesus, let me come walk to you. And he walks to him and he gets a little afraid and then he sinks in the water. And Jesus picks him up and he says, oh, you of little faith. And so that's the context with which we're dealing here. There are two fish, five loaves, and feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Now, this would not just be the paralytic at the Pool of Bethesda, but there would have been others as well that he had healed. Number one there on your list under Jesus Feeds the Multitudes, it says people followed because of signs, not because they sought salvation. Uh, Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover was near. And so there is something going on that's underlying that you have to kind of dig for here. First, the people are following Jesus, and they're probably going to be making their way from the Sea of Galilee down south towards the city of Jerusalem, because that's what the Jews did. They had made this trek, and they knew that Jesus was in the area, and they had heard what he had done in Jerusalem already, and so they were gathering around where he was. The Jewish Passover reminds the Jews that God led them into the wilderness to give them bread to eat, 
And Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and it says in a remote place. And Jesus led the Jews to the wilderness and he also fed them bread. And he means to make this connection of these two things. The Old Testament Passover and that's why it says the Passover was near. That's why it says Jesus went to a remote place. Well, let's pick it up in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great multitudes coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind that he was going, what he was going to do. Now, in Matthew chapter 14, it says there that they do not need to go away when the disciples responded to him, you know, well, they have to go into the towns and get some food to eat. He said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And so as he's talking to his disciples there, he, he says, what are we going to feed them? And then Philip, especially, as we'll see, he says, you know, they wouldn't even be, what, six or eight months wages to feed all of these people that are here. And he is correct in saying so, but Jesus was testing them to see how much they had faith or how much faith they had that God would act. And secondly here on your outline, God will test and build the faith of those who believe in him. God was testing Philip and the other disciples to see if they had enough faith to know that Jesus would feed the multitude. Now they had already seen the miracles that he had performed and they were just waiting, waiting to see what he would do at this particular point because he's prompting this. And this is a small test in comparison uh, for these guys, in comparison to what, for instance, Job would have experienced. If you go to Job chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in verses 15 to 19, it spells out that he lost on multiple occasions as it's reading through these verses, servants, oxen, donkeys, sheep, cattle, all of his children, and then eventually his health. He lost all of that. And God was testing him. Matter of fact, he even presented him to Satan himself. Have you considered my servant Job? And so it was a test for Job, and he passed with flying colors. Now, this test that these guys were experiencing, they, they were young in this idea of who Jesus was and coming onto the scene. The church hasn't been born yet. They only knew the Old Testament. They hadn't gotten read uh, uh, around the special revelation of Jesus and who he was, God in the flesh. They understood that he was the Messiah and all of that, but they really hadn't grasped everything. They were kind of dense. They weren't putting it all together. And so their faith was being tested a little bit. Now, when our faith gets tested, like Job, we start asking things like, well, do I really trust God? Do I trust him to do what he said he's going to do in his word? Is God really with me? Am I really saved? Where is God in the midst of my trouble? Also, Abraham, he was tested, of course, you know, in the book of Genesis when he was asked to give his son on the altar. And he just reasoned that God would resurrect him because he was the one which the promise would come through. And God tells us why he tests our faith. It says in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So God wants us to become mature in our faith. The greatest problem I have seen with this is when individuals in the church, this church and other churches, when they run across difficulty they bail they just say i'm done this is too hard 
I'm not continuing. I just talked to uh, Pastor Drew uh, about some issues on one of the missions trips, and they were they were upset. There's problems between people on the ministering teams. It's just not good. And Pastor Drew just sat back and he told me, I don't know if he told them, and he goes, welcome to ministry. You know, that's what ministry's like. You're just going to have problems like that. And even more so if you're ministering on a regular basis. But the worst thing that can be done, and this phrase has maybe been overused, but you jump ship in the middle of the storm. Remember Paul said, do not jump ship in the middle of the storm when he was shipwrecked because lives would be lost. Just stay with the ship and everybody will be saved. Just stay with the ship when you are going through a trial. Don't bail. Don't say, God's not with me, so that's just it. I'm walking away from Christianity and I'm walking away from the church. God says, just remain. Or when you don't hear God's voice. I remember Raul Reese when I was a young Christian. He said, I haven't heard God's voice in five years. And when he said that, I go, wow, five years you haven't heard his voice. Well, what's with that? You know, you're reading his word and everything, but you just don't get a clear direction. You're just existing and God is silent. Usually when you're a new Christian, God speaks a lot. At least in my case, when I became a new Christian, he was speaking to me a lot and I could tell it was him. And then there's been times where it seems like it's a desert. And you don't hear anything. And then it will go up and down like that. But most people have a tendency not to remain, not to stick it through. They get disgruntled. They get upset. There's a problem in relationship. And so they just say, I'm done. Or somebody thinks bad about them and they can't resolve an issue. And the Lord says, don't. Stick it out. Work it through. And when we're supposed to make a change of venue, he lets us know. But not in the midst of any storm that we're experiencing because we truncate our growth it's like it just gets cut right in half and have you ever seen a uh, there's California sycamores if you cut a California sycamore off at its base one trunk seven will come up and it has to be there for years and years and years for it to become fully mature again And so that's what happens if you jump ship in the midst of a trial or the midst of a storm. When God is testing your faith, you're supposed to wade through it. You may not be producing any fruit during that time, but you're still still supposed to wade through it. And it's for our being complete and mature. Now going on in verse 7. Philip answered, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In other words, not to have an abundance. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, in Israel, in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, there's this slope. There's this church at the top, and that church is where they say the feeding of the 5,000 took place. We don't know if that's the exact spot or not. But if you go there certain times of year, 
It's just green. It's green from the top of the hill all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. And they, I think they had wheat planted when we were there, and the wheat was golden brown at that point. But there would be a certain time of year where that would just be completely green. And so that's where they think that Jesus had the people sit down. Now, number three on your list there, it says, we should never limit God even when we only have a little. In other words... Simon Peter, he had this boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. And you think, what can God possibly do with that? Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, there is this woman that was a widow. And a prophet of God was told to go there. It was Elijah. And Elijah was told to meet up with this woman and this, have this woman feed him and this woman was a widow and she said all she had was a little cup of flour and a little bit of oil and that's all she had and she was gathering some water and she was going to take it home her and her son were going to have their last meal and they were going to die because there was a famine in the land and the prophet elijah said just go home bake this up and then after you're done cooking a little loaf for me i want you to cook a loaf for yourself <laughs> she goes, okay. So she goes home and she cooks up this little loaf for him. And she goes back and apparently there's more flour. She goes back, a little flour, a little oil. So she makes a cake for her and her son. And this goes on for like three years. All that's there is this little thing of flour and a little oil. And God was able to sustain three people on a little cup and we think that, God, you can't do much with me. I don't have many gifts. Are you kidding? God can use any one of your gifts, and he can use it in a big way. He can use your funds. You may think you have nothing, but God can multiply that so quickly, and he can expand your horizons if you just have faith enough to watch him work. If you know that God has told you something, just go forward. God will provide. Uh, some of you have heard the story of this building. Uh, in order for us to get this building, we only had $10,000. We had 30 days, and we needed $100,000 more in 30 days. We were getting out of our lease. They wanted to charge us $7,000 a month, and we signed the papers. We go, okay, Lord, we got $10,000. That's all we have. What do you think, Lord? And... The last day, we had the money. And the Lord just said, ah, you have little faith, you know, and he provided everything. And so if God calls you to do something, just go. I can't tell you the number of people that have thought that they're supposed to go on a trip, a missionary trip. But I said, if the Lord wants you to go, the money will be there. And they've had nothing, and the Lord provides the money. And so that's what we're never to do is limit God even when we only have a little. Verse 12 when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, Jesus made a connection with bread, Passover, and the wilderness. Now, I alluded to this uh, just a minute ago. It appears that the people got it 
because in verse 14, it says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who is to come into the world. And since it's close to Passover, Passover would have been on their mind. Now, remember the story of Passover. We've just gone through it a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. And this idea that Moses was there, and they made this sacrifice, and they're baked this bread, and this bread was unleavened bread, and that's all they had time to make because of the quickness with which they had to leave Egypt. But as they left, also they went out to the wilderness. They were running out of food once they got out there, and God provided them manna. He gave them this food from heaven. Now, a lot of Jews would say that Moses provided for us this bread in the wilderness. Of course, it was called manna. And so you have this Passover, the Passover lamb. You have the manna. The Passover brought them into the wilderness. You have the wilderness that is out there and the manna. Those three things are what the connection is being made by these people because they recognize that this manna, this bread for them, appeared miraculously. Now, in the area of the Sea of Galilee, if it is where they think it is, Jesus could have been standing up on a slope and down this slope everybody would have seen him there wouldn't have been one that had an obstructed view the way that this is set up if you can just imagine a big slope that just kind of gently goes down towards the Sea of Galilee and if Jesus was at the top uh, his voice would have projected or just the opposite if they were up the slope and he was down towards the Sea of Galilee which probably would have been better acoustically they would have seen from a bird's eye view everything that he was doing and so he had these five loaves and he had these two fishes he blessed them and then they passed them out and as they passed them out somehow they were multiplying the way that I have it in mind is you know how you have those um, the cans with the snakes in them you open up the can and the snake flies out well you take the bread and you snap the bread and more bread just comes out is probably how it happened. Now I'm guessing, that's just my view of it. But every time you broke the bread, it would just expand. It would just keep on expanding. And the people had plenty and 12 basketfuls were left over after everything was said and done. And so Jesus is making this connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we know this because you get to the end of this chapter, he says he's what? The bread of life. And so he's making a connection with the manna, and he even says so. The manna that was provided in the Old Testament and the bread that he provided this day, and he is the bread of life. Number five there, because of the miracles, they desired to make Jesus their majesty. In verse 15 it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Also, in verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were seeking more after the food than genuine faith and belief in Christ. Could you imagine showing up somewhere and somebody tells you, you're going to have all the food you want to eat forever and you're not going to have to work for it at all. That's the whole reason why we work Our belly, the book of Proverbs says, is what motivates us when it comes to our jobs. And so this 
idea that they could have food, they could have bread all the time kind of excited them because they wouldn't have to work anymore. Now going on to Roman numeral 2 there, Jesus says, fear not. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, in Matthew, the same story is related in verse 14. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And we know the story. He got out of the boat, and he walked towards Jesus on the water. Now, going back, chapter 6, verse 21. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. I don't know if you catch this in the text, but as soon as they were on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus shows up, Peter gets out of the boat, starts to walk to Jesus, starts to sink. Jesus picks him up and places him back on top of the water. They get back into the boat, and as soon as they get into the boat, instantly the boat is at the shore. Instantly. They were transported. Just Kirk, you know, Scotty, beam me up, that type of thing. They immediately were at the side. I, I, I don't know what you guys would think, but I think my mind would be blown at that time. They just saw the feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children. Now they're on the, the sea and it's rough seas out there and they're rowing and it's taken them three to three and a half hours and they're not going very far. They're just going a few miles and they can't make it there. And then they get transported to the other side of this lake. Now, God is trying to build their faith. He's doing this for them so that they are not easily shaken when the trials in their lives really come. And if we have a little faith, only a little faith, a little faith leads to fear. The, the less faith you have in Christ, the more you have a tendency to worry. Now, First John chapter 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. If you have a perfect relationship of love with Christ, you're not going to fear anything. Uh, Proverbs also says in chapter 3, Trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding. If you're doing that with your whole heart, you're not going to fear anything. Now, I would ask you, right now, maybe it's not your fear, but what do you think the greatest fear of people is today? Death, public speaking, nothing like a terrorist attack or the election or what's going to happen with that or our children. You know, there's things that we worry about that you shouldn't worry about because you can't change them. You've heard the statistic, 95% of the things that you worry about never come to fruition. And the ones that do, can you change it? You can't change it. And so you just got to go, well... And you just go with the flow and you're not fearing. Why? Because we know no matter what happens, no matter what tragedy takes place, there is another kingdom that we're going to, even if it's to the point of our lives being taken. Uh, do you fear getting sick? Uh, especially right now, did you guys hear uh, Aetna is pulling out of Obamacare? That's huge. 
I don't know if you know how huge that is, but that means there's a lot of people that are not going to be insured. And they, that is supposed to be on one of the top five lists of what people worry about is having medical insurance. And now they're not going to have medical insurance. And now they don't have the money to afford the medical insurance because the prices are going up. So there's so many things we can fear. And God says, don't fear. If you have great faith, you have zero fear. If you have a little faith, then your fear gets magnified. Roman numeral three, Jesus is the bread of life. Now, this is the long stretch here. Searching for Jesus to supply supper. That's what the people were doing. The next day, verse 22, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are not looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves, ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So, number one there, Jesus is not a genie. Never follow him for strictly earthly gain. Money, position, favor, food, pleasure, or creature comforts. Imagine how good it would be if you never had to worry about food. Proverbs sixteen twenty six that I alluded to before. The laborer's appetite works for him. His hunger drives him on. What would people do if they didn't have to earn a living to buy food? They would not be motivated. They would become slugs. We would become slugs. We would become couch potatoes. We wouldn't have to worry about food anymore. Even as far as shelter is concerned, there's people who would live outside. They wouldn't worry about it so much if they just had food because food is what sustains you, right? And so they, they wouldn't really worry about it. And so that's why God set it up in this fallen world that we have to work. Now, in the Garden of Eden, they ate. What did they eat? fruit they were vegetarians right of course being a vegetarian i'm sure that one of the trees was an in and out burger tree and it probably had animal style double double you know with the extra pickles on it and so you picked this piece of fruit and it tasted just like a double double animal style and it was all good and there was probably fruit trees of all different kinds that tasted all different ways and probably hundreds of them it wasn't just the citrus and the stone fruits and a few of the grapes that were there. I'm sure there were unique trees. We know that because there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And what would those have tasted like? And I believe they were literal trees. Now, some people would say, oh, come on, get out. No, that's what they ate. They were eating, and it was fruit. And God is explaining it in a narrative fashion and if you start going down that um, allegory road, there's no end to that on interpreting scripture. And so this idea that Jesus is not a genie, he's not the one that provides for you food, that's why he uh, set it up to where we would be working. Secondly, 
the thing that we're supposed to learn from this is limit temporal pursuits by seeking after that which is eternal. In this particular case, Jesus is even saying food is secondary to your spiritual pursuits, that which is eternal. Yes, question. Four and five earlier. Okay, did I not mention them? Four is Jesus made a connection with the bread, Passover, and the wilderness. And five is because of the miracles, they desired to make Jesus their majesty. Okay. Number one on the next one. Number one. Having little faith leads to fear. We, we are on number three now. Spiritual life is given only by Jesus, who is the Father's approved source. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 reiterates this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So anybody that is not a Christian is not going to heaven. I'm going to say that another way. Anyone who does not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior willingly will not go to heaven. Anybody that does not go to heaven goes to hell. Everybody has an opportunity. It depends on whether or not you accept the opportunity. And there are those who accept the opportunity, but it's not genuine. They may even be emotional. They go forward, but there's really no change in their life. They may feel sorry. They may feel sorry that they got caught for sin, but they're not sorry that they want to live eternally, that they know they are sinners from the inside out, that the very nature we possess are sinners. That means all the world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Baha'i faith, all of them are perishing. Wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to salvation and few there be that find it. That means most of the world is not going to make it. But we have been given an opportunity to tell everybody and that's why you want to tell everybody because you hold in your hand, it's like the golden goose right or the goose that laid the golden eggs you have it in your hands and you can give it to others freely and you'll never run out of the eggs you can just keep on giving it and giving it and giving it if the people reject it then they reject it that's their responsibility but it's our responsibility to make sure that they know and this is what Jesus is telling the people that are around him that he is the only way. He is the way and the truth and the life. Now, we have three questions that they present to Jesus here. Number one is, what must we do to do the works God requires? Secondly, what miraculous sign, what miraculous sign will, I didn't write that right. You know, they're in verses 28, 29, and 30 here. Let's just read them. Then, 
they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Did they not just see the feeding of the 5,000? Now, these, this is the group of people that's going around. In that group of people, you have the Jews. If you say the Jews, you're referring to the leadership. You're referring to the representatives of the Sanhedrin. You're referring to the Levites as well and the lawyers or the scribes that are there. This group is going around and now they're demanding another sign. And they have already seen several signs. The Pool of Bethesda. You know, the, the guy who was the paralytic, they were just about ready to crucify that guy and kick him out because he had been healed on the Sabbath. Who told you you could carry your mat on the Sabbath? And so they had seen this, and now they're asking for another one. They go on to say, Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And so they're still thinking on an earthly plane. They're not getting it. They're not making the connection. Jesus here is talking in metaphor. And they're taking him literally. They're not making the connection. And why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God just show up? For instance, if, if God, on a Sunday morning, we have, say, the chairs are full in here, and 30% of the people are not even saved. And we say a prayer, we go, God, will you please just open up the roof and let's see your Shekinah glory, something like that. And maybe stars fall down and an angel just lands right in the middle at the speed of light. And we go, whoa, like God's real, you know. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't he just make this spectacular entry to where everybody will believe? And there's a reason that he doesn't. There's a difference between compelling truth and convincing truth. God never uses compelling truth, but only convincing truth. And they were asking for a compelling miracle that would force people to believe. You have to ask yourself the question, can God perform a miracle that would remove all doubt? He certainly can. Would that violate your will if he did that? Yes, it would. But does he leave enough convincing evidence so that you will believe? Yes, he does. How much evidence is there? Volumes. I mean, nature has the evidence. Science, if you look at science, science has the evidence that is there. Theologically speaking, theology has the evidence Not only that, practical living, just the way things are set up. If you look at the way the world operates, philosophically, the evidence is there. You can go to all these different ologies, these studies, and you can see there is an abundance of evidence that God is there and he has revealed himself to us. It's when the people demand a sign. They don't demand a sign just because they want to believe. They demand a sign for some other specious reason. They, they have some other evil intent that they want to have this sign. They want to have God act outside of his character, and he won't do that. <clears throat> also, if you remember the story of the poor man <clears throat> and Lazarus, if you remember the, uh, or excuse, excuse me, 
the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, when the rich man said, just send somebody back from the dead and my relatives will believe. And the response Abraham had, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. So even those miraculous things, and could God actually do a miracle that would convince somebody? Well, yeah, like God's real and he's here, but would it be a saving faith, a saving belief? No, that's not what does it. It has to come willingly from the heart at the prompting of God himself. Miracles alone can never produce true saving faith. That is number two. Verse 35 says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now again, we understand from our perspective, he's talking metaphorically here. He's not talking literally. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And here we have promises from God that he just spells out. And I just want to reiterate them for you here. If we place our faith in Christ, we will never want for food or water. Now, does that mean we'll have an abundant supply of food and water? Well, I suppose so, but we don't need food and water to maintain life when we get our new bodies. And that's why Jesus said, I have meat that you know not of. I have food that you know not of. And our spiritual bodies will not need that. Now, Will we be able to eat? I think so. I think we're going to have a feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And like I said, I think we're going to have those In-N-Out burgers that are going to be sitting right there or whatever food that you like. I mean, it's just going to be even better than the best food that you would like. Secondly, if we place our faith in Christ, he will never send us away. He will never grow tired of us. He won't act capriciously. He will never say, okay, I'm tired of you guys. I'm moving on. Thirdly, If we place our faith in Christ, we will rise from the dead. And this is our ultimate hope. And fourth, it is the Father's will to give us eternal life if we place our faith in Christ. So it was God's will that Christ came and died for us, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life because, quote, he is the bread of life. That is D. Verse 41 At this, the Jews, and remember the Jews are of that group that are investigating who Jesus is and later accusing him, began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now this flies in the face of what the Jews thought too. The Jews thought that because they were born Jews, they were saved. That was it. They thought because of their purebred heritage, that they were entitled because there seems to be certain promises from the Old Testament that would say the lineage of Abraham are God's chosen people and he's going to dwell with them and they are going to be, or he is going to be their God. 
And there are verses that say that. But not all Abraham's children are from Abraham. They are people of faith. We are Abraham's children if we believe in Jesus Christ. So the Jews thought that salvation by virtue of their birth made them a child of God. Verse 45, he goes on, It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Now remember, this is in the context the Passover is taking place. Jesus just gave them physical bread to eat without limit. And now he's saying, I'm like that bread. I am the bread of life. He's making this connection right there. Your forefathers, verse 49, ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. He's making another connection here, which I'll get to in a minute. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will, ne- he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I could just sit. Their veins were popping out their necks and they're throwing their arms up, probably dust in the air. And this is blasphemous. And how can he? speak like that and Jesus is just telling him I'm the bread of life and no one comes to the father except through me and only the father can draw him and basically he's telling him you're out you do not qualify and so they're they're just beside themselves and they're not understanding what he's saying because they're stuck in the physical realm he's talking about spiritual things here number one we all hunger physically and we all hunger spiritually now, physically, there's no question. <laughs> you just go a few hours and you start craving things, right? Or you start going um, days. If you've gone days without eating, the one, uh, the one sense that uh, really takes over, do you guys know which sense that is that really takes over if you don't eat for a few days? It's the smell. You can smell a steak a mile away. I mean, it'll just wafe in. You go, there. It's like your body's saying, "Feed me." And anything that you can smell, you want to avoid all restaurants. Don't go to the mall or anything like that because you will smell that food, and your body will start to react. You'll actually have a little bit of a physical reaction because your body will get excited, and you'll smell that, and you'll start salivating, whatever it is, whatever is appealing to you. And so we have this physical hunger. But we also have a spiritual hunger. Like, for instance, let me ask you, is love physical or is it spiritual? It's spiritual. You cannot weigh love, right? You can feel love. Now, there is, quote-unquote, the act of love. But when it comes to true love that God defines as love, it is spiritual. How do many people seek after that spiritual need? They seek after it physically. Or they try to supplement it with something. They will supplement it with food. They may supplement it with sports, beer, 
drugs. They may supplement it with video games. They may supplement it with texting. I mean, you, you just fill in the blank. It fulfills a need. <clears throat> There's this one job that I do uh, when I work in my landscaping business, and I usually do it at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon during the week. That's because everybody's leaving, and it's at my Sharp Hospital. And so I see all the doctors and medical workers and all the nurses, and they're all piling out, and they're ready to go on to 805, and the traffic just backs up. About every other car is talking on their phone or looking at it as they're waiting in that line. And I'm not kidding you. that They are just going through and swiping and talking at a distance or talking on the phone. They have this need to do that as soon as they get in their car. And so we can supplement this idea of love, of feeling this feeling by doing several different things. We're always looking for a feeling. Yes. Well, it works. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, there, there is a subject related to that, and it's called uh, having a toxic faith. Some people will say that the only people, uh, the only reason that people actually spend so much time serving God is because they're looking for this need to feel loved and accepted rather than realizing why they're doing it for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. That may or may not be true. I'm not going to judge that. But I don't think you can be too addicted to Christ. If you are addicted to Christ, not that I'm going against what you say at all. It's just this idea, because people can do that. People can get so involved in just doing stuff that that's what occupies their time, like hobbies. You know, hobbies can occupy somebody's time like no other. But this idea that if we're addicted to Christ properly, in a proper balance, we will know how much is too much and we will know how much is too little. Because he'll tell us. He speaks to us. He lets us know. He gives us his opportunities. So, yeah, that's true. We can fill it full of works. We can fill this idea of wanting to be loved through many different avenues. And we want to make sure we're not doing that. So we all hunger physically and we all hunger spiritually. The only real bread, physical food, can satisfy physical hunger. Only real bread can do that. A phys- or spiritual bread cannot do that. And only living bread, spiritual food, can sp- satisfy a spiritual hunger. <clears throat> and so you can only go to Christ. He is the only one that actually satisfies. Before I became a Christian, I was looking for what else was out there. I knew there was something else out there. I would talk to religious people. I would go see um, uh, the psychic Yuri Geller, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I watched him. She's like, whoa, I'm going to go home and bend spoons now. You know, and how can I do this and get in touch with what's out there? And, and who has never, as a child, not that I ask you to raise your hand, tried to do a seance? Or, you know, you're speaking in the mirror and you want something to manifest and they, all that stuff. And you're, you're going to be scared out of your wits if something eventually manifested. But you're, you're seeking after this other stuff. And... That's the spiritual realm, and only God can satisfy. 
Okay, so that's what he's saying here. Jesus said to them, verse 53, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, if you're just listening on the surface, this would be tremendously offensive, what he's saying here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And this is not referring to communion. This is referring to the spiritual bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. And his blood, you know, if we drink of his blood, we are only symbolizing what is actually taking place in the spiritual realm by drinking the communion and eating the bread. But this is what he's telling the people, and it's tremendously offensive to him because they're still on the physical plane. Just as the, verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, that's a a clue, a hint for what is going on here. Jesus is talking about, he's making a comparison between the manna in the wilderness and the bread that he just gave and him being the bread of light, of life. And he's talking about the bread that they are so stuck on that they were given in the wilderness for this physical life. Jesus is telling them something else with that and the disciples weren't getting it. I'd actually like you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16 here. Just grab a Bible that's in front of you. And Jesus has a message for his disciples. He's trying to let them know something else is going on in this bread. He's basically saying that these Jews have it wrong that they lean to this physical bread that they got. They need to lean to the spiritual bread. And those who would lend them to confusing attitudes on this, the Jews, they are just wrong. And he's telling them, be careful of these people. In verse 6 of chapter 16... He says that. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples discussed this amongst themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Right? They're not getting it. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? He goes on, do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? That takes place in Matthew 15 and Mark 8. How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's telling them, look, this physical bread that you guys keep on referring to, that you hold to, that you're sons of Abraham, it's all wrong. You got to turn from that. And he's telling his disciples, Don't listen to these guys. They're leading people astray. So Jesus uses a physical bread to speak of the Jews. It is to be avoided. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples are grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? 
What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. So he makes plain to them, I'm not talking physically here. He is the bread of life, 64. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enabled him. From, that, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Number four there is follow, following Jesus is difficult, but there is no alternative for eternal life. And you know, it saddens me. I've seen several people where they've turned away from the faith and maybe they mix it or they dilute it and they mix it with some new age teaching. They'll, like on their Facebook, they'll post things about um, some shaman has said something or some Buddhist has said something. Uh, Some spiritually enlightened person uh, from China or from India has said something and I want to make sure you guys understand all truth is God's truth but not all truth is in the Bible these other religions will have some truth but if you take that as being equal in weight with what God says and remember all truth is God's truth but in the context in which it's delivered you have to avoid the context if something is true, you can say, well, yeah, that's true. I can agree with that, even though it comes from some Hindus. I can agree with that. But if you buy into the whole thing and say Hinduism is okay and Buddhism is okay and Mormonism is okay, I keep on seeing those coexist stickers. I, I see them everywhere. And I'm thinking, I, I want to get another sticker just to explain that. Stick right next to it on their bumper so they'll understand really what's going on there, that the moon and star want to kill the Christian and the Jew that's on there. And the Hindus, they'll be the next ones that get taken out. And so we want to make sure we're not walking away, we're not mixing things. It's so sad because Jesus is the only way. There is no alternative. Patty and I, we've come to this crossroad before. It's like when things have gotten difficult, we've said to ourselves, so where else are we going to go? There's no alternative. There's nothing else that satisfies. We already know the way, the truth, and the light, and the life. And if we turn from that, there's no hope. And the people that die without Christ, they die without any hope. I've quoted this to you before, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he is declaring here again, the last chapter, 10 proves that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the Messiah, the one sent from God. This one, he keeps on harping on it. I am the bread of life. Think about the Passover. That's me. I just give physical bread. That's me. I give spiritual life. And the people just don't get it. And his disciples, many of them, not the twelve, they just walk away. Verse 70, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. 
And this is the fifth point. Judas followed Christ for what he could get for himself, not for what he had, not for what Christ Jesus had to offer. Remember, he was the one that would pilfer the sack of money. He was the one that was probably looking for Jesus to rise up as El Presidente, the one who's going to be in charge, the uh, uh, prime minister, however you, the king, however you want to ascribe a title to him. That's what Judas was looking for and what he could gain as a benefit out of it. The final tragedy of this is you can be with Jesus for years and not know who he is. And I pray we don't have that issue, that we don't have that problem, that we make our calling and election sure. And there's many, I believe, Christians, many, not all, a few, maybe to a lot, that they don't follow Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're not addicted to Christ, not addicted to his word, not addicted to pleasing him because there's nothing else. That is it. That is the ultimate. So as far as an application goes, what did we learn? Jesus is the bread of life. That's it. He is the only one that provides for us the sustenance for eternal life. And the second thing is nothing else matters, not even physical food. Any questions? Did you get enough fill-ins? There's so many in this chapter. You got them all? Got them all filled in? Okay, we're going to pray. By the way, one other thing. If you don't have a passport, Passport Fair, August 27th, 2016, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. We have flyers in the back. Mandy, you probably need one of these, right? Okay, so let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We understand that Jesus, your son, is the Messiah, the bread of life, and there is no other way to heaven. And we understand that everyone else who turns you down, this offer of salvation, is perishing. We pray for them, Lord, that you would open their eyes, that you would bring understanding to their minds, that they'd be able to turn to you or turn back to you, whatever the case And help us, Lord, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. And according to your will and your timing, may we take advantage of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming.